Eight races into 2021 and six into Marc Marquez's return to racing after badly breaking his arm 11 months ago. And he's a winner again. Top of the podium, he kept a cool head when it started to spot with rain, even speeding away from an ever-closing Miguel Oliveira. Marquez was in tears afterwards because of the relief, knowing now that he continue, he can continue to do it again, and also having that relief that he now knows he doesn't need to go and do something else with the rest of his life at just 28 years old. Toby Moody, Valentin Harunchi and Simon Patterson here. As always, we're going to start off this podcast with Val. What is the first thing that springs into your mind with Saxon Ring 21? Well, yeah, apart from the, the obvious Marquez win, the first thing in my mind is that it, it sort of feels like title race-wise, we just took a race off. There was an eight-point swing, but it feels like this particular title race, it has bigger swings than this one. So it feels like not much has really changed. If I could go second, I really thought Oliveira was going to win it until that lap from Mark Marquez when it was drizzling with rain. And then I was sitting watching the telly and I said, that's it. He's going to win this. He's going to win this. Nothing can go wrong. And it didn't. Simon? Maverick Vinales's time at Yamaha has to be coming to an end because Sunday was quite simply the worst performance I've ever seen a factory rider deliver. All valid points, if I could say so. Um, well, we have to start with Mark Marquez because, wow, just incredible. His 11th consecutive victory at the Saxon Ring and his 8th consecutive MotoGP victory at that circuit. King of the Ring... How has he done it? He said that he shut out negative comments. We hear this a lot from professional sportsmen nowadays. They just lock themselves away and they only speak to the people around them. And that's exactly what Marquez did. Um, he knew that his physical limitation would be less around the Saxon ring. He said, yeah, a bit of change of direction into a right-hander. I was not comfortable, but it, quote, did not affect my speed. But we we heard him say after the race that he spoke at length to Mick Doohan, who had essentially been through exactly the same thing after his Assen crash in 1992, nearly lost his leg. And he sat on the phone listening to Mick. And all of a sudden, I realised that Mick was saying his experience, what I had just gone through in the last 11 months. Um, a telling tale. Uh, for the rest of the season, he said... I think, though, I will continue like Mugello or Barcelona. In other words, I won't be so dominant. But I take that with a pinch of salt. I think his mental confidence will be through the roof. What do you guys think? I, I actually disagree with you. Um, I think Sunday's race was just an absolute triumph of willpower and determination. I think he came into that race knowing this is the chance, this is the opportunity, this is the one to strike. And I actually think that rather than boost his performance, especially this weekend in Aston, we're actually going to see it go the other way because I think that's going to have taken so much out of him uh, mentally and physically that, that you know, he, he went all in there. That, that's the first time since, we've, since he's come back that he's put all his cards on the table, pushed all his chips forward. And uh, I think that's going to make him a little bit more cautious whenever the next hand is played. Um, he's still not physically able, really. Um, he's still not. Uh, he's still not riding a bike that's very good. Let's be honest. The Honda's a bit of a dog this year. Um, but he saw his opportunity. And and the one thing I will completely agree with you on, Toby, is he won that race on one lap. He won that race whenever the rain started. Whenever he saw the opportunity to make that break. I don't even know if he was trying to break the rest of the field because it's kind of a Marquez strategy that we've seen before. The minute the rain starts, he pushes to try and build a bit of a buffer to do his pit stop, to switch to the other bike. So I don't even think he was trying to break the rest of the field. I think he was just trying to to pull ahead so that he had clear track to come in and then the rain didn't come and he was able to stay out. Um, but uh, yeah, that and then the way that he managed Miguel Oliveira perfect but um i don't think it's the start of something new yeah i'm sort of with 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 simon on that one because ultimately this was a this was a perfect storm in in a certain certain sense and marcus himself freely admits that 
there were two two major factors. The first one was that it started drizzling with rain, and when when that sort of conditions, you know, slick tire, gripless circuit, when that happens, Mark is just he's in another category to everybody else. He doesn't need to be fit to dominate in those conditions. And those two laps, they made the gap. And the other one is, of course, the Saxon Ring is unlike most MotoGP tracks. Not only does is it full of left-handers, so it's easier on, on Mark's condition, but also Mark, Mark has a massive built-in buffer there. We didn't really see that this weekend, but I, you know, the, the offset basically is that the, his baseline level, current baseline level, was still enough with the extra bonus of the Saxon ring to get him in victory contention here. I don't think that's going to be the case for for most circuits. And I think the relief will... I think it actually f- might boost him for Assen a bit because, you know, the, the objective minimum for the season must have been to get a win. And that's that's job done. He, can, he, he has proven to himself conclusively that MotoGP race wins are still something he's capable of. I think the time for recovery and sort of road bike training or whatever during the summer break will also help. But the rest of this this season only really matters in so far as setting up setting up next year. But yeah, great win. It was a fantastic win. Took a lot of took a lot of circumstances, but the thing is Mark's been so unlucky this past year that he really he really deserved this one. The role of Mark um, just to pick up on what you've just said, the role of Mark for the second half of the season now is almost kind of that role that uh, the leading Pramac bike has always played, uh, that uh, Zarko was playing now, that Miller had previously. His role for the rest of the season is to develop next year's bike, and if he can win on the day, win on the day, but it's not to fight for a championship. As he said, you know, for the rest of the season, it will continue like Mugello Barcelona. Uh, I will not be the mark of 2019 for the rest of the season. But I think that 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 mental step that he has taken and the relief that, you know, he's not going to be not riding a bike again. Okay, tick, I'm riding a bike again. Getting that buzz and a winning feeling, he's got that buzz again. You know, at the end of the day, I've, I've always been a little bit worried about Mark of having a big accident and hurting himself. That's happened. He got away with it with his life because some of his accidents have been pretty terrifying. Let's be blunt about it. He's had a wake-up call. Others might not have survived. He's had a year away. He's had to recover. He's had to think about it. He's been to all sorts of places in his mind. He's seen the dark side. He's seen what riding, not riding is all about. And now that he's back with the oxygen of, of, of winning, then... It, he he's realised this is the second chance. And did he did did a chat with Mick say, "Don't win by ten seconds, win by one second." Did the chat with Mick say, "Just just honestly, you're overriding. Just come back half an hour." Because we all know he's got time in his pocket. We all know that his dominate. It's the Valentino win in Australia in 2003 when he had to win it by 15, 10 seconds and he won yeah. it by 15.2 seconds. 10 seconds. And Valentino, cheeky monkey, at the press conference said, oh, today was the first race I had to ride at 100%. And I just sat there and went, I don't believe it. We've been watching all of this and he's never been flat out. There's a bit of that in Mark. So maybe the chat has all come together and will he, will he, will he continue on the, on the upward rise for the rest of the season no i didn't mean that all along but psychologically that's a massive step that he's that he's taken mark said as much after the race he said oh for the first 15 laps the honda is different from the other bikes we have to manage the front tire more at saxon ring so for the first laps i was just riding slowly and managing the front tire (laughs) you know but his riding slowly was still enough to lead the race Goodness me. It's just another level, isn't it? Um, we've never seen him so emotional. No. Ever. No. Yeah, there was a, basically there was a glimpse into that from, you know, his brother Alex, who was obviously asked about the, the whole situation. And he said that Mark's been through so much that past year that you, he could write a book. And if he does, you'll, you'll see how difficult it was, basically. But I, I have no doubt that it was really, really, really tough. And... It is. It is a great. 
it's a great thing to see him back on the top step because he got really he got really boring in 2019. But if you told me in 2019, two years on, you'll see Mark in victory uh, in the top step of the podium at the Saxon Ring, and you'll be delighted and surprised. I wouldn't believe that at that point, but here it is. Here's what it is, and you know it's 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 a great story. We'll remember it for for a really long time, or maybe we'll forget it right away because he wins ten more races going forward. Yeah, who knows. He he kind of surprised me afterwards in the press conference as well because he was um there was no swagger when he came into the press conference room. He was quite humble last night. Um whenever he came in I sort of gave him a quick clap and he came over and said, you know, thanks Simon, I really appreciate it. And and that's not the mark of old either. So I think that that more than anything that we saw on TV showed me the emotion of yesterday. The fact that it it was the first thing I've ever seen that humbled Mark Marquez. The other thing that Honda and I have got to be careful of is, oh, well, we're back to the good old days because, as you've already said in this podcast, the bike is not a magic silver bullet that is going to win everything. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, Mark has been taking chassis from Nakagami, Nakagami moving stuff around and all sorts. There's no kind of immediate direction that we can necessarily see so it has masked a lot of things should i say for hrc yesterday do you agree simon yeah absolutely um i think that there are people in hrc who are going to be breathing a sigh of relief that is perhaps undeserved um all you have to do is look at where the other hondas were at a track that should be you know there's two reasons why mark marquez is so good at at saxon ring one of them is because the track suits him so well but the other and he said this afterwards is because it suits the bike so well which means you should have expected to see four hondas closer to the front and all the way through practice it looked like there was going to be four hondas all the way through the front um joking last night on twitter with uh jorge lorenzo about how hard it is to make predictions but he had nakagami predicted as a podium contender because the hondas were all so strong during practice um, so, yeah, there has to be questions about why that bike can't run the race. And I think we know why it can't run the race. It's because the bike is so aggressive, so physical, so demanding of a rider that there's only so long you can ride it at 100% unless you're Mark Marquez. And, you know, we always said that that whenever Paul Espagaro joined the team, we always said that Paul would be really good from the start of qualifying because he is very, very good at giving 100% on one lap. But whenever the bike's like that, you can only give 100% for so long before it bites you and you fall off, which is why Paul, why we're seven races into the season and Paul has equaled his all-time crash record. Yeah, the bike, the bike keeps biting Paul and he keeps falling off. He fell FP1, FP2, FP3. He says he, every time he pushes, like really properly pushes for a time, it feels like he's really, really close to crashing. So he probably, honestly, it sounded like he kind of expected to crash in, in, in Q2 as well. Just, and this is, it's a far cry from the, from the pole I remember, maybe not so much in the more aggressive KTM, but on the, the pole of the Tech 3 Yamaha era. is a very consistent score, a very reliable, safe pair of hands who would bring, bring the bike home at a, at a decent speed. Um, just weird. It's, it's really, like, you could say that maybe Paul's doing something wrong but the thing is i mean he probably is doing something wrong but the thing is paul taka alex are all performing markedly worse than last year like you can tell it taka having been upgraded to a factory spec bike is struggling a lot more than he did than he did last year alex marquez is basically back to square one despite you know despite the year of experience and paul obviously is nowhere near close to recapturing the, the form he showed on the KTM, despite the Honda, in theory, being a bike that should specifically suit him after those years on the KTM. So Mark says, the thing about that is Mark says he's not, he's not 2019 Mark yet. 2019 Mark was also alone at Honda. The rest of the Honda riders were not, not performing that year. He won the, the manufacturer's title by himself, basically. And the team's title, there were like dashes of points from Stefan Bradl and Jorge Lorenzo. But it was, again, it was all Mark. All of it was all Mark. And I hope that Honda, you know, Honda still feels big, big pressure to fix this rather than trying to wait it out and see if 2019 Mark comes back and makes the rest of it not matter. 
that's basically and I, I hope this win doesn't tip the scales in the in the wrong direction you must feel pretty ropey if you're polis bargaro <clears throat> when yeah. uh, Marquez wins it and you're 10th and Marquez is already ahead of you in the championship. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's Vinales, Mark II, isn't he? Uh, he's a, it's been weird because he's, he's, he just, he's sad every day, basically. And it's, it's so unusual to see after the largely beaming pull of the KTM, like of the KTM underdog days in particular, he was... He's a really, really happy guy. Even when the bike, you know, wasn't so hot, he really felt like this project was his and it was growing. He was watching it grow and he was so, so happy about it. And I I really miss that because happy Paul is is what I prefer, obviously, to see. He's a he's a he's a good character. And though I hope I hope he figures it out. I hope Honda figure it out with him. I really, really do. The the difference in Paul and Maverick for me right now is that Paul knows what the problem is. Paul knows that the bike is too aggressive and too hard to manage. Maverick's completely lost. Um, I think that's something we'll probably touch on in a bit. But th that, for me, is the substantial difference. Paul knows what the problem is. Honda knows what the problem is. Everyone knows what the problem is, apart from maybe Mark Marquez, because he's so talented he can't see it. So, as one Yamaha struggles, and we get round to, to Vinales later on in the podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, another Yamaha is... Uh, Extending his championship lead in the shape of Fabio Quattararo. When eight races in, we're not even halfway through the championship. And as he said, today was like gold. Uh, happy at not winning. That's that's a championship. That's a championship rider's mentality, uh, level-headed. Was it maybe because the others are not a threat in the championship? They might be for races, but Let's see about Oliveira. Uh, let's see about Mark, because you just never know, because it, it could be. <laughs> you just never know with Mark. Unlikely, but let, 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 let's see. We've got a long way to go. But he was pretty happy at the office yesterday. Val. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think coming into the, the weekend that Fabio would gladly settle for third place and describe it as gold, but there's no other Yamaha in the top 13, and all the other Yamahas have had shocking weekends like absolutely horrific and it's not the first time this year this has happened i i wrote a, a column that at, at that point i felt might be pushing it a little bit where i suggested that fabio was taking up that old honda mark role where he was the only one making the bike work but it, it really really looks like that now and clearly the m1 wasn't in in fantastic shape at at the saxon ring you can also see that because fabio did lose pole position to a ducati but yeah, this was a this was a really really good performance because ultimately also when he slid down to sixth at at the opening laps, I thought oh this is gonna be this is gonna be a big blow for his first you know for his lead basically I expected it to be halved, and instead he he fought his way through and he did he did really well to regain a podium and seemed to be pulling off some really really good comfortable overtaking moves which again. None of the other Yamahas are managing. All the other Yamahas got stuck in traffic. And Fabio's making it work, not only in terms of pace, but he's managing to overtake. Which, obviously, they are connected. But it's just, it's it's super, super impressive. I see some similarities in the Yamaha situation to the Ducati situation of the past. Um, we, we had this Ducati that had a, we were told, had a persistent problem with mid-corner turning that couldn't turn in the middle of the corner, was always slow there, was never, never, you know, had been an issue for years. Then Michelin bought the new rear tyre last year and it made the problem worse and no one could do anything with it and et cetera, et cetera. But the guys who were saying this were the guys that had been riding Ducatis for years. It was Davi and Petrucci that was coming up with this. And Miller and, and Bagnaia just tried to find a way around the problem. They changed their riding style. They adapted to it. And it fixed the problem without having to make radical changes to the bike. And then what Ducati did instead of changing the bike was they changed Davizioso and Petrucci and brought in some new guys who could learn to ride the new style. And that's exactly what it looks like is happening at Yamaha. Fabio rides differently. Um, Franco Morbidelli, amazing quote from, from the always lyrical Frankie over the weekend, said that uh, Fabio rode romantic lines on the bike. But that's the problem right now. The others need to learn to do that. And that's why it's so just confusing 
to hear Maverick Vinales saying that he basically refuses to learn to ride like Fabio and that Yamaha has to build him a bike that suits his riding style because it ain't going to work. They're, they're not going to change the bike to suit the guy who's finishing last whenever the other guy's leading the championship. Why would they? No, it's a fundamental mess in that garage. I mean, can you imagine how low the shoulders are when they're building the garage on Wednesday morning, knowing knowing it's going to go wrong? I mean, it's just a horrible situation of, of, of psychology for five days or even seven days a week. They've changed the crew chief for Vinales. Um, it's a works team. It's very difficult to complain when the other bike's on the podium and you're tugging at the back. I mean, it's just a road to nowhere. I mean, we can touch on the Vinales subject now, shall we? The quote that just stood out for me was a throwaway one at the end of his presser. I just want to go home. Well, what about the umpteen hundred people who are making the bike and who are doing all hours God sends for not even a third of your pole position bonus um yeah <clears throat> whatever's wrong with the yamaha valentino hasn't complained he's been very politically correct and he keeps smiling and he knows the game it's not just riding the bike um you know they are very well paid they are very well looked after and they hopefully if they manage themselves very well they have got enough money for 10 lives over um so he's he's got to pull his finger out it's just a mess with vinyanis I, mean, I think you have to be a little, a little sympathetic, not fully sympathetic, but a little sympathetic. I don't think, I, I want to imagine those, those quotes aren't intended as a, as a, as a call out of anyone in particular. It's just, if you look at it from Vinales' standpoint, it, it, nobody thought it would take this long to click. And right now it looks further away from from working out for him and Yamaha than it ever has. And in fact, I think many of us already believe that this is it, this is over. Um, before, when when Maverick had a good day, he won. When Maverick had a bad day, he finished 11th, 12th. It was not good enough for a title challenge, but it was you know good enough to be one of the front runners in MotoGP at the very least. Right now, when he has a good day, he's like fourth or fifth. When he has a bad day, he's at the back trying to find clean air to ride. Uh, what made he made it sound like he deliberately rolled out of following the Ducatis just because he got too frustrated and wanted to gather data in clean air, which sounds a bit like a strop. Maybe it was lost in translation. It's a bit, it's a bit hard to say. But you know, he's just such an emotional guy. This is not, this is not good for anyone. This is not good for him. I, from a human standpoint, I understand it because of all the history that has come before it and all the expectation that has been there year after year that it'll finally work and it just it just doesn't happen. Um, but obviously, from a sports journalist type of view, there is there is no you can't you can't be saying this when Fabio's dragged the bike onto the podium. It's not you, clearly. What you can be saying is, maybe this isn't bike for me, maybe I should go find something else. But another important subtext, I wrote the, the feature about the, the Yamaha nuclear option of how big it was a move to remove Esteban Garcia and replace him with a company man in, in Silvano Galbracera. And it was a move that if it doesn't bring improvements, then Maverick, then it's over because Maverick has had to ditch his friend, basically for in a very desperate move and if it doesn't bring dividends then that was all for nothing the pain of that separation was for nothing and it's going to just sour him on the project even more and we're two races into that experiment and it it looks like that's exactly what's happened there's no improvements the drastic move has been made and it's it's not helping right now uh, it it might be over i think there's a feeling from everyone who's watching that it might be over and i hope if it is over, then I hope it's over sooner than later. Let's not do another year and a half of this if it's over. It genuinely feels like the Yuan Zarco at KTM situation now. It, that's, that's the mood where the two sides of the garage are completely opposed to each other. The rider is completely at odds with the engineering team and the management. I, and just nothing is working and there is no way of seeing any way out of it. Um, the problem is, I don't know if Maverick or Yamaha have the, um, I don't even know what the right word is, the willpower, the determination to say the right thing for us to do is to walk away from each other. 
especially when there is nothing else on the grid for Maverick. There is nothing. He There is no space for him at Suzuki. All of the satellite teams are filled. There's nowhere for him to go. Um, the only, realistically, the only available options on the grid right now for next year are an Aprilia seat, which I don't know if he wants and I don't know if they can afford him, or a seat at Petronas Yamaha, and he's not going to the satellite team because that's not going to make anything any better. So what do you do? Hmm. <clears throat> I mean... Japanese management will not be impressed with what happened yesterday. That is an understatement of this podcast. Um, it happened to Biaggi when he was at Repsol Honda. Forgive me, was it 05, was it 06? I can't remember the precise year. Um, and they fired him before the year. He had a rant at Turkey. Somebody in the garage told me what went on. It was just unbelievable. And they fired him. Um, we're 10... 15 years on from that, corporate, younger generation, maybe a bit more attuned to not having a complete rant. But behind the scenes, I dread to think what's been going on. And it won't be going down well. And it's that time of year to just, oh dear, cut your losses. Uh, I hear what you say about Aprilia. They might not be able to afford him. But if he leaves or he's fired, he hasn't got any option. Or he can sit at home like like Jorge and 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 wonder and, and, and opine how quick he was. No. There is one key difference, I think, at the Yamaha situation than at the than there was at the KTM situation with Zarco at the time. And that is that Yamaha, in theory, have got a solution to the problem should they just decide to sack him. Because they've got Cal Crutchlow. They've got a guy who is a regular MotoGP race winner not that long ago. And I'm not saying that Cal necessarily deserves a factory ride. But sack Vinales, stick Morbidelli in the team, send Cal to Patronas. And you've got a stick and plaster at least for the year, for next year, you know. There are options there. It's exactly what Bernie Eccleston would do. Get rid of him. Move him over here yeah. and move him over there. Da -da. Come on, start <laughs> a petition. Come on, chop, chop, Simon. <laughs> See, it is a bit of an emotional decision still. I don't think, I don't think uh, making like an emotional call like that is in the best interest of, of a factory just because... Yeah, he, he upset us by his, with his one comment. I mean, he did win the Qatar opener. There's still a rider there. If 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 they're going to split, I think it should be mutual. I think they shouldn't. But, the, yeah. The one thing I'll say, Val, I don't think it would be necessarily an emotional call based on everything that has happened since the guy joined the team. Because we're just stuck in this loop of Vinales wins a race and then Vinales spends 10 races complaining about how useless Yamaha are. Um, the only difference is this time he's the only one complaining about how useless Yamaha are. Um, like, let's not forget the last time he did this, he ended up getting, somehow getting the Japanese engineers to stand up in front of the media and publicly apologise for giving him a bad bike. I still don't know how that, that happened. Did happen, yeah. But um, but that was whenever Valentino Rossi was on the other side of the garage and he was struggling too. Doesn't cut it anymore. Mm -hmm. And also on page nine hundred and forty-three of his contract, it'll say "Don't slag off the team." So they'll be beating him with a stick with that page, and uh, you might have three or four races of some very bland press conferences with him because he won't say "boo" to a goose. Been there, done that. There was a MotoGP.com appearance from Marigali, I believe, my Marigali, who said that the move to Galbucera from Garcia was a way for Yamaha to make sure it's finally getting a return on investment in Vinales, which is a, it's a harsh stance to take on, on, a, on your, on your big, big rider, big name rider. But it, you know, it is, it is true. That is a true description of the situation. It is one Vinales has also acknowledged. If there's also a, a question of money and you can somehow mutually agree to, cut your losses here and now then yeah but if you still have to pay him then keep him on the bike i think the question is whether vinales is up for another year and a half of this if this is what it's going to be like i wouldn't be but then again no 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 no. the question is question is whether or not yamaha are up for it yeah i think i think i don't think they have like an obvious much obvious like obviously yeah calling up cal 
to do some in-weekend test rider work maybe is also useful, but I still think uh, you keep Vinales on that bike for another 18, 18 months. You'll, you'll go to the top step of the podium once and twice. I think that's still possible. Is that worth much? I mean, it, it's a MotoGP win, so yeah, I guess. It's, 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 it's a hard situation without exactly knowing what the, what the financial ramifications are and what, what, what the backup plans can, that, that are, are that can be made. Uh, it depends next year with Vinales whether or not the number one bike is next door in the garage because Quattararo is the world champion as well. You know, it just gets worse. Simon? Just another thing to throw in there. I don't know, based on his past form, if there's any more chance that you're going to be a sort of semi-regular podium visitor with Vinales mm. than you would with Crutchlow. Okay, well, the Vinales saga goes on. Um, we sort of went towards Vinales there because I was going to talk about Miguel Oliveira after Fabio Quattararo. Oliveira finished second in the Grand Prix only to Marc Marquez at the Saxon Ring. I did say at the top of this podcast, I thought he was going to win the race at one point. And then it drizzled and Mark Marquez ran away with that time gain that he did on that lap. Uh, Oliveira, out of the last three races, has scored 65 out of the 75 points that have been available to him. Wow. Now, he's seventh in the championship. He's 57 points behind Quattararo. But on that kind of form, yeah, he'll be uh, only going one way in the championship standings. And we're not even halfway through that title chase. You said you said there was one point where you thought Miguel was going to win. I'll I'll one up that with I thought there were like fifteen points that I thought Miguel was going to win pre-start on the grid, <laughs> All right, first then. laps, and then after after the rain came, even after Mark pulled away, I still thought that Mark was going to fade and Miguel was going to snatch it. So actually, I was I was wrong, but oh, it's just incredible, isn't it? It's such an incredible run of form. Uh, I sh- honestly I did not. I did not think this was possible. I, I think Miguel proved completely that he can be a top-level, top-line, absolute MotoGP star with that dominant Portuguese win last year. But, I mean, this is something else. This is just a, a phenomenal run of, of three really, really good races. That said, 57 points, I think that's too much. I think that, that ship has sailed. Uh, because that's just that's just a huge amount of points to to make up on not just Fabio but also all the guys who are currently much closer to him. But wow, yeah, that's that's all I got. Also, if he if he improves qualifying a little bit, he'll be even scarier. But at the same time, he's already out qualifying Brad Binder very comprehensively, so that just m- might be asking for for too much. He's in an incredible form, doing an incredible job. I don't actually think that uh, Oliveira's performance was even the best KTM result of the weekend. I think. Binder was even more impressive because Saxon Ring is not a circuit where you can overtake at and the guy made up nine places um, I think that if he had like you said Val if he had got a better qualifying position then he would have been the big threat again um, it, it they have built just the most utterly dominant team there those two guys once they figure out a few things because they're still only young once they figure out a few things, once that bike gets a little bit better, they are going to be so hard to beat. No, 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 no you know, I, I should, I should say, I, I can't see Binder as more impressive because he got destroyed in qualifying. I mean, that's also on him and the repeated, the repeated one lap deficit to to Oliveira that we've been observing basically all season. That's on him. That needs to be fixed. And it all for me, it goes back to the the extension. The, the 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 extension to 2024 because I, I still I want to see how they navigate that with Oliveira because he was asked before the race before the start of the weekend I think he was asked so are you guys gonna sign for 2024 now and well like are you in talks already to extend by a further two deals or the question was something like that I, I'm paraphrasing it a bit but basically the important thing is Oliveira's answer which was one word no no Oliveira is not bothering with a with an extension right now which such a blunt response he's a blunt guy but there's there's some sort of message in that response that not everything is super smooth i think and on the current form on the current form they need to hang on to him because this this has been an incredible run yeah Mm, i 
I don't know what's going on if he's not talking to them about an extension to his contract. But he is a blunt guy. He does say it how it is. And so will the management to him. So it works both ways with uh, with the orange lot. Uh, well, it'll just be fascinating to see how it, uh, how it all shakes out. Um, Bologna Bullets, another V4 in the shape of Banyaya. He said, I was too slow at the start. He was pretty invisible, really, throughout the Grand Prix yesterday in Germany. Um, yeah, he finished ahead of Jack Miller, his teammate, but it it wasn't there, unfortunately. Um, am I right? Am I wrong? Am I hard on him? I, I think that was actually... A, I think you're partly right in that it, it wasn't really there, but at the same time, I think that was a really good ride from him because it wasn't there, because I think the reason for that wasn't any Ducati rider's fault and was just really the nature of their bike. Um, you know, we've said it time and again, they've got a dragster. They've got a long, low bike that isn't a big fan of tight, twisty corners at a circuit that is basically a go-kart track. And they were always going to have a bit of a struggle with the first two sectors, or the, the last two sectors. And it just didn't, yeah, it, it was never going to be amazing. Zarco's pole lap was something extraordinary. I don't really know where that came from, to be completely honest. But um, after that, we saw, I think, the real level of the Ducatis in the race. And the best of that bunch of Ducatis was Peko Bagnaia on a day when he was the one that started from the back. So, yeah, good job. The, the, the first laps. So watching the first laps and seeing Bagnaia go down to as low as 16, my brain was like, okay, well, this is the Bagnaia I've watched for the last two two years in MotoGP, just suddenly capable of a, of a weekend that really is really bad and makes no sense. And I was like... Well, I finally see that those are still in him. And somehow he's fifth at the finish, despite not having looked very quick all weekend. I am, again, I am super impressed because that feels like a, a big change to previous years. Is that enough to keep his, to keep his title credentials alive for the, for the season? You know, yes, probably, because some better tracks are coming after Assen, which won't be great, probably. But after that, some of the tracks will be good. But it's just... Clearly, something has changed with with Peko, and that's you know because I I was I was preparing for a twelfth thirteenth place finish, and I was preparing to say okay, title charge done, and instead he's fifth, having overtaken a whole bunch of people, having passed a struggling Jack Miller, like he was stood still on the final lap. Yeah, I I had a conversation last night with Fabio Quartararo about how to win championships. Uh, and we were talking about you don't win championships on the easy days, you win them on the hard days. And I think both Quadraro and Bagnaia proved yesterday that they're championship contenders because they did so well on bad days. Teammate Jack Miller said that he was in the mix after qualifying Saturday, but, you know, as you've touched on, couldn't get it quite there come the end of the race. Uh, a lot of people ran into some rear tyre trouble. They just chewed it up a little bit too much. Um, he was one of them, but he's still third in the championship. He's 31 points behind Quattararo, who, by the way, has a 22-point advantage in the championship over Juan Zarco. Uh, as good as a race win. Nice, but not a guaranteed, very comfortable buffer, but very healthy at uh, b before the halfway point of the championship. We shall see. We shall see. Ducat uh, Ducati... So so, shall we say? So so, but as you say, they did well on a on a difficult day. Um, Valentina Rossi, he had a good warm up. Uh, he lost rear grip towards the end of the race. Uh, I touched on it earlier that he was smiling and he was politically correct about the whole Yamaha thing. Anything else from the turquoise yellow garage? <laughs> Not really. It was a bit of a rinse and repeat. Valentina Rossi, no rear grip at the end of the race day that we've heard more times than I can keep track of at the minute. Um, it's just not working. And I, I don't really know what else to say about it because I don't think they really know why. Yeah, I think one thing more notice, notable than anything he did on, on Sunday is that we now believe that he's heading to the to the World Endurance Championship next year. So that's, yeah, that's basically it. Um, I think probably... Rossi looks less frustrated now, and I'm not sure that's to do as much with, with the improvement in form, which is there, but it's it feels really minor. And it's only the improvement in form is only because the other Yamahas, besides Fabio, who's doing incredible, but the other two Yamahas look rough and Rossi looks better compared to them. 
Uh, but I think the improvement is the improvement in his mood is because I think the decision is made, and I think he's he's made peace with it pretty quickly. That's just my reading of it, just armchair psychology. So feel free to, to disregard that completely, not put it on the court record. <laughs> no, I think I think you're exactly on the money. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's a weight off his shoulders. Um, uh, there was that, uh, shall I naughtily say, slightly amusing gravel trap tiff between Petrucci and Alex Marquez. What was the, what was the word in the paddock after that? Because I didn't see any more word, Val. Yeah, so I've not seen the. The problem is the 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 turn one camera was catching riders ahead, so it only caught the the, the end of that. Basically, both the cameras that showed that incident, they only caught the very end. It's. It's weird. It's it's like we, we have to probably see some sort of CCTV to really understand what happened because the versions from Alex Marquez and Danilo Petrucci were basically conflicting. Alex Really? Yeah, yeah. Alex thought he got hit <laughs> by Petrucci returning to the line who didn't see him lunge. Petrucci felt Alex crashed by himself and then took him down. And yet the most interesting thing, and a thing that a thing that's that really really entertained us after the race is so i we all expected petrucci to blame alex and i asked simon in the work chat so who do you think petrucci blamed and he was like he was like jokingly oh i guess lecuona he blamed lecuona that's that's correct yes simon simon's joke was correct uh danilo blamed uh teammate iker lecuona and felt that that iker uh cost cost this team the whole points hole from the Saxon ring. Now, to, to explain that a little bit, what Danilo meant by that is he felt that Iker was being way too aggressive on those opening laps, way too aggressive with Danilo. He's breaking way too late. He feels that bit of aggression from Iker was what triggered Marquez to crash in his wheel tracks because Iker kind of missed his breaking point while trying to overtake, ran a bit wide, and Marquez, following his reference, crashed and took out Petrucci. But again, Petrucci mostly blamed Iker, said he was really disappointed in him, said he was really disappointed that in that early race bout of aggression, because it was a race about managing early on and then pushing in the end, because Petrucci says that's what Saxon Ring is like. There is no point to do that in the beginning. And he's, he was really upset with, with Iker for doing just that, especially as Iker then faded really badly for the rest of the race. However, it is important to note uh, Lequona says he had food poisoning and his stomach wasn't doing so well and I think he faded a lot more than you'd expect just general tire where I think he was legitimately unwell but anyway yeah there's some discord in the tech three camp between the two riders who might be might be dueling for for the one run ride that remains if if Raul Fernandez doesn't want it I feel like if we uh start holding riders accountable for goading others into making mistakes the next few moto three races could be interesting I was rather, I was rather waiting for an excuse like Kaczynski at Donington. Why did you crash? Oh, there was a fish on the track. Um, yeah. From from I, I will share it with you guys after the podcast. But from my days in BSB, there is still an online uh, spreadsheet of called the Book of Excuses. Oh, yes. Some of them are remarkable. Ah, oh, remarkable. Yeah, well, that was a uh, that was a, a a good race for uh, for obviously the people at the top. But anything else that was going on in the paddock, Simon? Uh, another weekend of dubious stewarding decisions. We can't go without mentioning them, can we? Um, they said that you they can't. Were... <laughs> Man, until until we see some consistency, you know, um, they they said they were going to clamp down in Moto Three riders over the weekend that. They were going to be stricter with everyone. Then we saw one of the strangest penalties I've ever seen handed out to someone whenever they penalised Darren Bender twice for uh, colliding with uh, a wild card on a slow lap um, because they disqualified him from the next session and gave him a ride-through penalty for the race. Which I don't really understand whenever other people were banging each other out of the way with no penalty at all. Uh, but the, the, the strangest thing for me really comes in qualifying because we saw factory MotoGP riders who should know better doing the sort of thing that Moto3 riders get sent to pit lane for with no repercussions. Miguel Oliveira does not need to be stopped on the track waiting for clean track. You know, the guy is capable of winning the race as he went and showed us. Um, it sets a terrible, terrible example. 
Um, I think that the main criticism most of the writers who were critical had on Saturday afternoon wasn't even that, that the guys who had been slowing, it was, I think, both the Marquezes, Nakagami, there was a handful at it. It wasn't even that they were dangerous. It's just the example they're setting to Moto3. And for me, for the stewards to punish Moto3 riders and then tell MotoGP riders that they're fine to keep doing it, just, I don't understand it at all. Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> I call it the uh, the Schumacher effect. Uh, they didn't penalise Schumacher enough, in my eyes. And it, 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 it just cascaded down and some of the support races on four wheels are, are unacceptable, in my view, in my view. Someone someone pointed out on social media made a very good point that it feels like they're punishing the guys who aren't in championship contention to try and make the guys who are in championship contention behave better. Yeah. Yes, it's uh, it's not an easy wicket at the moment. Uh, Val, you wanted to touch on Suzuki. Yeah, just a really, really bad weekend, I think, for Suzuki. I think uh, quite dispiriting. Simon uh, might have some more exact input on what exactly went wrong. <laughs> apart from the heat. But, you know, this is not... That was not a, a title defense-type weekend. Like, that was really bad. And it was... Uh, obviously, Alex Rins will have the, you know, the the rightful excuse that he's right out of surgery. So that's fine. Yeah. But, again, um, problem is, Mir only ninth. He rode a, a decent race. But, again, he leaves himself with too much work to do in qualifying. And this time, when Suzuki wasn't too competitive, again, Rins made a lot more of it over one lap. If you sort of mushed their two strength together, that maybe Suzuki could still get something out of this season. But right now it's looking, it's not looking great. I I had a very expensive beer um, at the opening round, Nick Guitar with someone from Suzuki, uh, who, who told me that the tire allocation this year really, really, really didn't favor them for the first few races of the year. And that, it was always going to be a case of surviving for until until the championship until it got to the point in the championship where they felt like they could really really make their move um that same person messaged me on saturday afternoon to say right one more race to get out of the way and then we can do our thing i asked mir on Sunday afternoon after the race of Assen was actually the first round of the championship for him. And he laughed very, very hard at his debrief and then agreed that, yes, Assen is the first place where they don't have to worry about the tyre allocation, where they, the allocation suits their bike again, and that that's where the work really, really starts for Suzuki. Um, they're not really any further back in the championship than they were last year, although other people are being more consistent at the front. I think it's a bit of a different dynamic. Um, but yeah, I think we'll see more of what we expect from Mir and Assen. And then we've got a long summer break and then it'll be really, really, really interesting to see what happens at the Red Bull Ring again. Because let's not forget, the guy should have won a race last year at the Red Bull Ring until the red flags come out. Um, he was robbed of his first victory at a track where no one expected Suzuki to be strong. So if they can go there again and be strong again this year, then maybe there's enough time to still do something because we're we're still only a third of the way through the season. Is that true of KTM with their change of tyres that has been a bit... You're shaking your head in no. Um, I, I think KTM have just built a new chassis to deal with the tyre rather than wait for the tyre to get better for them because they've got a slightly different issue. They've, they've engineered their way out of the problem rather than do what Suzuki have done because Suzuki, let's be honest, aren't capable of engineering their way out of a problem the way the KTM are with their huge budget and their massive workshop and their massive team of people. Um, Suzuki have n just known that they would have to grin and bear it. Let's keep our fingers crossed for Aston. Sorry, Simon, something else? Yes, just that it comes into my head while we talk about how many races are left this season. Uh, rumour in the grapevine is we will get a new calendar in Assen, which will hopefully be the final 2021 MotoGP calendar. We still don't know what it's going to say. Um, we know that all the European races are pretty much a given because we've proven that we can run a European race safely and healthily. So we'll do all of them. The flyaways, the talk is that Thailand won't happen. The talk is that Japan won't happen because that's but that's very tied to the Olympics. 
the talk is that Australia won't happen, but that's kind of an assumption based on how difficult it is to get into Australia at the minute and maybe doesn't take into consideration the fact that we've had an adult, double Australian MotoGP race winner and an Australian is leading the Moto2 Championship and that maybe flexibility can happen. Then I think we'll go to Malaysia twice. We'll have two races in Sepang. Um, someone which I hadn't even thought of until last night. I had a beer with a friend last night who said, didn't they install a massive floodlight system and want to have a night race? You've got a good memory. Yes, I'd forgotten that. Who knows? I'd forgotten that. Who knows? Maybe we have a day race and a night race. You could do them on the same day, Simon. Then we'll come back to Valencia. (laughs) (laughs) Well, superbike style. The riders would love that. And then... And then maybe the season finale this year for the second year in a row won't be in Valencia. And I think a lot of people in the paddock would be very, very happy to sign out the year in Texas. Yeah. (laughs) Not the most exciting race circuit in the world, but damn fine party afterwards. And better than a concrete jungle (laughs) that is Valencia in the middle of November where it will rain. So uh, Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I did ask on our last podcast for you guys to tell us where you are listening from. Simon Fraulo, listening from Abu Dhabi. Uh, Looking forward to the next round and the next podcast. Well, you've made it into the next podcast, Simon. Michael Gordet, listening from Nova Scotia in Canada. And also Simon 09582369. There's an easy number to remember. Uh, He says he's... That's just Simon, isn't it? (laughs) Simon, Simon. He's listening from (laughs) Abu Dhabi. So, uh, so yeah, and also Vince Vanka uh, is listening from France. Very interesting to listen to the talk. So let us know uh, at We Are The Race on Twitter where you are listening from uh, through our uh, our Twitter handles at Denkmit for Simon, at Toby Moody for me, and at Valentin Harunchi. <laughs> but you can look him up. Through at We Are The Race, because that's fine. V Karunji, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I can't imagine why you would, but you can. You absolutely can do that. Simon, how'd you get the, the van to Abu Dhabi? <laughs> the long way. The long way, yes. Can be done, but it'll be the long way. It'll be the long way. Thanks, guys. Uh, good catch-up, as always, after this Saxon Ring Grand Prix, where we have seen Marc Marquez return to the top of the podium. 11 consecutive Saxon Ring Grand Prix he has been uh, victorious in. That's that's beyond an aggo figure, isn't it? That's going to last for many, many a year. Keep in touch with the-race.com for news, podcasts, videos about Formula One and MotoGP. In the meantime, from Valentin, from Simon and myself, Toby, goodbye for now. Speak to you after Assen in a week's time. <laughs> <laughs>